Welcome to the Five Minute Podcast. I am your host Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, past guests Kyle Smith and Tyler Savage are back to discuss Miami Blues, the movie written and directed. I mean, I should say written for screen and directed by George Armitage, based on the book by Charles Wilford. Uh, I guess the Hope Mosley books. I am unfamiliar, and we will discuss that later. But first up, what I watched this week. Uh, continuing last week's episode with, on Mike Nichols, I continued my dive there. Although I did a side dive into some Elizabeth Taylor. Um, I watched uh, Cat in a Hot Tin Roof for the first time, which, I mean, Nichols and May did their uh, Tennessee Williams parodies. But, and I've seen many Tennessee Williams parodies on my life because, you know, I've witnessed American pop culture at one point or another in my 40 years. But, man, that was peak Tennessee Williams. And just, um, I mean, there was some great stuff about it. Most notably, it's Paul Newman's first Academy Award performance. And as we're going to discuss later in this episode with Alec Baldwin, young peak blue eyes just enacting and they're just prime but also notable for this week uh i watched all three and a half hours of warren Beatty's reds which that movie never fails to be just a giant achievement just a just such an amazing amazing i i just don't know how that movie came together and is so good in every way but i'm i was really curious for that time period of rush has been on my mind because I've just finished George Saunders' book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, his master class on teaching writing through uh, Russian stor- short stories from uh, Tolstoy and Chekhov, among others. But also I tried to get my last viewing of Judas and the Black Messiah in before it left HBO Max uh, Sunday night. But my most interesting thing I saw this week was for as much as everyone big filmmakers a big filmmakers filmmaker over the last like 20 years have been the Darden brothers and their last movie i believe it's their their last release movie young ahmed is on criterion channel and no one's talking about it and granted i think when it played at Cannes, it got pretty bad reviews i or mixed reviews i don't, I don't know if Darden brothers movies really get bad reviews i would still say watch it it's i liked it uh it's I get the sense that it's about uh, uh, fundamentalist Muslims and maybe they, the, you, you rely on the Dardens for getting their details right and getting their lived-in verisimilitude in, and maybe some of these didn't feel right. Also, the main child in the movie, the teenager, Ahmed, the titular Ahmed, has an acting style that's kind of... St- Diffish. He, he, watching him brings to mind that question that I know a lot of actors tend to ask themselves when they're in the middle of a scene, where do I put my arms? And that actor's decision was at his tightly at his side. Uh, but anyway, that, that's what I watched this week. Onward with the show. Glad you made me rewatch that. By the way, what a wild ass, uh, what a wild ass movie. I, d- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's bananas. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll just go ahead and dive in. Um, we don't I, have to. I, I made the mistake of um, thinking. I would assume Kyle had seen it, and you hadn't, Tyler. I think I saw it like years ago. 
I think I did. I do remember. I mostly just remember Alec Baldwin being insane in it. But I, I, there was a lot of the details and also the whole setup. I completely forgot. Yeah. Like a Harry Krishna in the fucking Miami Dade airport as a jumping off point for a thriller is just a totally wild thing. All right. Uh, I've been trying to get better about doing plot summary. So I guess uh, Alec Baldwin plays a criminal named Junior who flies into Miami. And right off the bat, you can tell he's a low level criminal who's learning to like forge checks and uh, or do signatures. And at the Miami airport, where he's flying into, uh, he encounters a Hare Krishna who uh, gets in his face and and what's the exact exchange he says where he says trouble like wh- he I think he asks him what his name is and his answer is trouble okay <laughs> and then he and then he takes his middle finger and fully snaps it back and the guy goes into shock and drops dead like right there <laughs> you find out later that the Hare Krishna guy dies and the the. Oh, actually, I give up on, on trying to describe the plot. Like, it, it, this is like part of the reason I wanted it. I want to know what you think of it, Kyle, since you hadn't seen it. Like, it, it, I, I, what was your impression on it? Well, it's sort of a big picture thing. I hate so, this. Why I'm saying it's better like at the end of the podcast. But sometimes the movies that you watch, regardless of what they are in the world, like speak to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. On Saturday night, for the first time, I watched Vampire's Kiss the Nicolas Cage movie. Okay. That's what, like four years before this three years. Yeah. It might even be just a year or two. Um, it, it shot. I think, you know what it is? I think it shot like an 86 or 87, but it didn't come out until 88 or 89. And then this is 1990, right? Or 91. This is 90. 90. 90 yeah. yeah. So I watched Vampire's kiss. And I'm like, well, here's this incredible performance in this sort of silly movie, but th- that's actually kind of really smart. And there's like some great, I, I really, really like Vampire's kiss. And then I watched this movie and was like, oh, this is sort of a similar thing where Alec Baldwin is giving kind of a gonzo performance in a movie that is smart about how crazy it is. Yeah. Like the Hare Krishna thing is actually just really good writing. You know, it's like it feels it doesn't feel like it, the guy dying by a broken finger. It's like surprising and also in a weird way it kind of makes sense like oh i can see how, i mean it doesn't make sense but the I, eyes going back in his head is one of those things where you it was it's like crazy like i came to this movie because i knew jonathan demi produced it and i think i saw it on video and i remember just it distinctly being big in my i don't remember when i saw it but i remember really like, oh yeah this is a gym that no one talks about and the, and the first thing in, in it way you can tell that it's going to be that way is how like carefree the movie is and then the tone shift after the finger switches the Hare Krishna guy's eyes go into the back of his head and you kind of know something really fucked up just happened but it doesn't seem like it, it seems feels like, like real yeah it feels like it's just going to be part of his introduction like it's uh-huh. just sort of the way it feels like it's the way that they're just kind of getting you to know this character but then it actually turns out to be the thing that sets Fred Ward and the whole plot in motion like literally the whole reason he's being pursued the entire movie while he's starting to sleep with the teenager basically is 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 because he broke this guy's finger and he that, died of shock. That's a good enough excuse to go back into the plot description. So he then Oh yeah, sorry, no, sorry, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, what were you gonna say? I was gonna say that just made me think there's a little bit of Safety Brothers vibe in there in terms of like the almost arbitrary seeming plot turn of just like, here's a thing like you just said, Kyle, it's like, it feels very grounded. It's, it's believable. It's strange. It's unique, but you know, there's no like, 
you know, Russian mob or like who did he fuck over on the West Coast that's coming out to the East Coast? Like if this was a studio movie, it's very easy. He screwed over somebody on the East Coast and they're showing up in Miami. But instead, they go for this much more like grounded kind of, you know, just strange little slice of life thing that kicks everything off. And before Shane goes to the plot, I just want to I want to you skipped over some important beats here. The man cannot get off an airplane without committing a crime within seconds, right? Like he immediately wants to steal a briefcase and then he's thwarted and then he ends up bribing a child to steal. With like a sucker. Yeah, steal a suitcase. So so actually this when he gets – after he breaks the heart of Krishna's finger, he gets on like a shuttle and these people run in. Like you see cops like or security run into the airport. I thought, oh, they're going to get him because he stole that suitcase. Like that woman lodged a complaint. It's logical. It didn't even register to me that maybe he murdered Hare Krishna. So I, I just wanted to make sure we knew that this man is established as a character who is so committed to wrongdoing that he seems incapable of anything else. He's 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 constantly trying to garner as much little petty crimes money as he can as he goes along in every instance where he can find anything. And and he goes to a hotel where. I forget he, he does another one in the hotel. I forget the specific one, but he um he knows the uh the what do you call him concierge? What 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 was Pablo's uh role exactly going to be? He's a pimp, but he's a concierge <laughs> as well. Yeah, he's a pimp concierge. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Tyler. That's what I was going for. And he uh he sent, he's like yeah, send me up a girl, and that's where Jennifer Jason Lee comes in. And um, what did you guys make of Jennifer Jason Lee in this? I didn't. I didn't recognize her at first. In fact, my my girlfriend was like, "Is that Jennifer Jason Lee?" And I was like, "No, no, no, no. This is some side character. There's no way this character in this movie is going to be a huge part of the film." <laughs> and, and also, she's so young, right? She's so so young. And the pixie haircut and everything. And then, uh, yeah. Then we, I think our second scene, we were like, "Oh, that is Jennifer Jason Lee. She is giving a really good performance. Like this is this, the movie's going to follow this seemingly random uh, prostitute <laughs> that he calls to his room." And and build a whole relationship out of it. He tries to sell her a dress at first, and then he's just kind of like he goes all in, committed to her from the suitcase that he stole from the airport. He's like, "Try it on. What did suit your size?" That yeah. blew me away. I love that. I, I love wonder, that. You know, um, you mentioned. I'm sure we'll talk about him more later. But you mentioned Demi, and I know that I read some stuff that he made married with the mob, married to the mob in Miami, and then they. Killed he him was living in Miami apparently at the time. Oh really? Yeah. I didn't. The, I, I, we'll, I'll go into a, a more George Armitage stuff, the writer director of this, but that's that's what he said in a recent interview. Well, the it, there's something about how something wild takes that crazy, you know, it just like runs with the plot and this in his crazy mm-hmm. ways. And and there's as we're talking about, like, oh, this is sort of what happens in something wild. I mean, it's different, but he meets the Melanie Griffith character, and then just the movie goes that way. And, that's a good. That's a pretty good comp. Yeah. When you were talking about the Safety Brothers, that's what I was thinking of. I think the most classic, uh, for me, one of the archetypal, a movie changing its tone just uh, to the distinct, not like all over the place, like a South Korean movie or something like that, or something like we commonly accept now. But at the time, a movie that turned into a completely different movie really successfully, like it was around the same time Full Metal Jacket came out, is something wild. Something wild starts out as this carefree comedy. And Ray Liotta then comes into it, and he's a part of that character, some of the, that light, lightness. Mm. But he's got a little bit of a menace, and then the movie turns into a thriller, very effectively, and in a way that you're going with the change in the movie so much. And 
in, in at least in American mainstream movies in the eighties when no one was willing to do or get anyone to pay for anything to do anything different. And I mean, in a studio movie, that was a great model of a, of a giant tone shift, which is something I think a lot of our best filmmakers right now are trying to embrace even more thoroughly. And this is a great, this is an offshoot of that in my, in my vantage. And the other thing that really struck me, I thought when I first saw this movie, I thought it was a Jonathan Demi vibe, but then I started reading more about Armitage and found out I've only seen three of his movies. I uh, haven't seen anything before this. He's a Corman guy. He's a Roger yeah, Corman he, guy. Yeah. And I think he only has three movies that he directed. No, is, he, he directed uh, like, uh, he, he's, I, one, one came up recently just because, I don't know if you guys are listening to uh, Tarantino's appearances on the New Beverly podcast, but he ta- uh, Tarantino recommended a TV movie he did called Hot Rod from like 78. And that... Was, and I got a lot of love for Gross Point Blank too. So, I mean, it's like, and you talk... You, you, we are going to talk Gross Point Blank. We are definitely going to talk that. Yeah, you talk about, you know... Well, yeah, you're right. He's got seven... He's got hit seven credits. But yeah, my but between 1990... And now he did Miami Blues, Gross Point Blank, and The Big Bounce. And then he was just, and that's it. And that's so interesting. We're also going to talk The Big Bounce, which, but. Um, Back but, to your plot, sorry. Yeah. Well, <laughs> plot, plot. What is plot? We do, we're, we're just a bunch of writers talking about this stuff. What do we know about plot? Um, the tone. I was, I, I, was, I was introducing the tone conversation to offshoot what Kyle was talking about with something wild. Yeah. Well, so just, I, I happened to see on my letterbox on like Friday. Somebody watched Hot Rod, and I like clicked on it. I'm like George Armitage. Oh, he's, he's my <laughs> just. I didn't know that it was in the in the air, but I guess it's because of Tarantino. It, it his, Tarantino talked about it as it's a his his the podcast was about TV movies and great TV movies, and he talked about it as being a surprisingly incident free, plotless movie for a TV mm-hmm. movie. Which, granted, he also talked about the the tradition of ABC had that. Um, um, I forget what their production studio was, but they had a bunch of uh, higher end ones that would get a few more days to shoot and then would go get theatrical runs in Europe, which most famously Duel would have been the, the most popular one or most notable ones from that, Spielberg's Duel. But um, but I mean, yeah, he came from the Corman school and he, was, and he considered himself more of a writer than anything else. Like he's like the period between Hot Rod and this, he was writing a ton of scripts in the eighties. And then he, the entire Reagan years, he didn't write as he didn't direct a single movie or have anything produced. I mean, I, I like his, I like his directing style in this. It's, it's chaotic. It fits the story oh, yeah. very well. And it's so claustrophobic. And there's moments where you can literally feel the actor almost hitting the mat box. And it's just like, you feel the claustrophobia of it and it fits the story perfectly. And and to go on your just kind of unite a couple of things here, I I believe Demi comes from Corman too, right? Was yeah, yeah, yeah no, no. The, I I don't know how much they overlap, but there's something about this uh, drive-in sensibility uh, that uh, anything can happen. That uh, um, in the studios, whenever they it it goes up into the studio system, and the studio system would typically now and then is just generally risk averse. And the more development people you get into them, they have these people judging behavior and any weird eccentricities. They're going to like say that's, that's just too odd. And this is a movie and Demi is really strong with doing it that commits to its eccentricities. Like these are clear decisions that seem like that's odd. Armitage's quote about Alec Baldwin's performance is that it was a he he likes it now, but 
at the time, it was a little broader than what he was hoping for. That's fair. <laughs> that is fair. <laughs> I, I think, you know, with this movie, but I was sort of shocked. I, I think it slips a little somewhere around the 60 or 70 minute mark for a little bit. And then I was reading some more. Do you remember about, what it was? Um, it's a little bit when it shifts to the Fred Ward character who is for me, for me. And we can talk more about that because of how the, the source material that this is based on. Yeah. I want to go into that. Cause I don't know much about it, but it's what I've read is awesome. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, this guy seems like a fascinating um, character and the writer that it was based on. But, um, but prior to that, I think it keeps this really amazing balance of being just bare, almost just wacky enough, but also grounded. And I, and I think it's, as, as Tyler put it, and I think the line that like really moved me that made me think like, oh, I'm watching like kind of a work of genius is when Alec Baldwin says, I should have written it down, but he says like to Jim Jason Lee, I don't, I don't even know what I'm looking for. And if I found it, I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. I, I wrote down the same line. And it's like, it's like, oh, you, here you are just stating a character. I can have oh. anything I want. I don't know what I want. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, and, and the performance, he looks totally lost when he says it, like in a good way. Like he's just like, he's hitting a moment of truth for the character. And it also makes everything he does make sense. And it like embodies the whole movie. Jumping back to the beginning, one of the things I found fascinating from a writing standpoint is how there's not a lot of, you know, his wants. The point of it is he says he doesn't know what he wants, which is the typical one of the typical engines you do to get through a script or to get through a narrative. And the engine behind this at the beginning is it's just new guy comes to town and you just want to know what crazy shit he's going to do next. Like, it's so unpredictable. And I think you just hit on it right there, both of you, which is that it's like the single defining thing of any studio developed movie is the character's got to have a singular one goal. And and this is a character in, in some sort of weird neo-noir reality who is defined by somehow being wildly active, but not wanting anything, clearly. Like, <laughs> you know, it's which is amazing. And also, I just looked up Jennifer Jason Lee. She was like 27. I just look at her in that and I thought, I thought she was like 20. You guys commented on her being underage because there was a giant joke about a fake ID or a different age in there. I actually, she just looked that way to me. I don't know, maybe the haircut or something. I think the pixie haircut makes her look young, but I thought she was legitimately, like the movie was trying to play her as just lying about her age when she was older. Because she was talking about the franchise she wanted to go into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might be right. But there, but they were up, you're right. There was, they were very, there was a lot of it, like you said, leaning into the eccentricities and I think leaning into a protagonist who he is not quite, um, you know, there's some kabuki there, and he's, like, playing this archetype of this big, angry, kind of restless criminal who's, like, like that early scene when he's, like, sitting in bed, and he's talking to himself, and he's doing some, like, light Scarface. And oh, man, the Scarface impression. But it's very juvenile and kind of charming, and then once you start interacting with, like, you go further, and even by that point, because of the whole airport thing, there's a real interesting intentional departure from morality in this movie. I mean, like he is just not at all preoccupied, you know, and we're not to be either. And even the cops that are chasing him are not even particularly offended by him. It's just their job to go get him. Like it's an amoral movie. The one story that came from the set was that Alec Baldwin had just come from Married to the Mob where he wasn't playing a broad role. He wanted to play something broader. And uh, Arntaj told the story about um, on set, 
The, main, the, the other big uh, Jonathan Demi connection here is it's shot by Attack uh, Fujimoto and uh, cut by Craig McKay. So those are his two big, Demi's big collaborators throughout his career, much less at this time period. And Alec Baldwin, on, in between takes on set, just did a massive impression of Attack Fujimoto and then did a giant impression of George Armitage. That was like for 20 minutes, like exceedingly accurate, apparently. And also, according to Armitage, kind of uh, hurt his feelings a little. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I'm not shocked to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Plot-wise, so then he gets involved with the hooker, and he... Um, meanwhile, you 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 alluded to this earlier, Kyle. This the, These books, Miami Blues is the first book in the Hoke Mosley series of books, which isn't a huge series of books, but there's quite a few by Charles Wilford. And Wilford has... He's, he's, I mean, he's someone I haven't read enough of, but like he's kind of a proto that he's a contemporary of like Jim Thompson. He's kind of proto Elmore Leonard, kind of. Mm-hmm. He's mainly one of the South Florida, Miami. He mainly lived out of Miami. Um, uh, Susie's college, she went to Miami Dade. Uh, he taught writing there while do, book reviewing at the same time, but he was based out of there. But I mean, most recently there's that movie, uh, burnt orange heresy is based off a book of his. Oh yeah. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm mildly curious because Mick Jagger's in it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mick Jagger. And, but one of the big quotes that came was Tarantino. Apparently at the time Pulp Fiction came out, someone asked him if they thought Pulp Fiction was neo-noir and Tarantino says, I don't do neo-noir. I see Pulp Fiction as closer to modern, uh, modern day crime fiction, a little closer to Charles Wilford. Nice. That's a big, I mean, that's a big nod. Yeah. I, I was reading, again, I, I, I just watched this last night, so I, I did, like, some research, but it's a little fresher in me. Um, but I was reading about hard-boiled detective novels and this idea that they emerge in the post-war period where it's hard to tell who's good and who's bad, and the system is corrupt, and the police are corrupt, and so these private eyes are trying to navigate all this stuff. And that gives a lot of context to the movie, especially, I think, its depiction of the police, which Shane mentioned, mm. which, of course, the current moment, you're kind of a hyper aware of the police. And I thought this movie had, like, an amazing take on the police system, which is, like, you can just say, I'm a cop, and people will, will yeah. do whatever you ask of them. Yeah. Like, huge criminals are afraid. And that Hope Mosley, a uh, good character played by Fred Ward, uh, his most distinctive thing is that he has uh, upper uh, upper dentures in his teeth. And I still don't know how they did that effect. Like, it, it looks like... Did they Fred, did it well, yeah. Did Fred did Ward well. not have teeth? Did he, take, did he have to take them out? I really have no idea how that was done. And uh, they, they go to the scene, and you find out that Harry Krishna died... And when they're doing their, uh, what, what, what is the thing when they go, go over the uh, homicide detectives go over the body? Oh, oh, oh. Anyway, they're, they're doing the body and they're just laughing the yeah. entire time, making fun of how the victim died in front of a Hare Krishna. Another Hare Krishna is right next to them. Right. Oh, no, they're so, they're so callous. It's they're crazy. so callous. And then they're arguing about who's going to find next to Ken, who's going to do the next motions. And so then Fred Ward then... Figure, finds out from uh, Pablo, the uh, the concierge uh, pimp, uh, that Jennifer Jason Lee's address goes there where Alec Baldwin's still at, and then they have this like, I don't know, proto Michael Mann tete a tete where like they have pork chops for dinner and like Alec Baldwin's just like that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie. He's for just sure. ripping a beer as hard as he can, drinking, and then like he gets to dinner and it's like I'm taking my shirt off. And like, uh, 
Fred Ward's like, I'm still technically on duty, but sure, I'll, I'll have as many beers as I can. And and then, and then he's also starting to flirt with her. I mean, so there's this whole thing going on with Fred Ward and Jennifer Jason Lee where he's like, definitely put the moves on her. But I love that scene so much because the subtext is just sitting there and he's just like back there brooding and he's like, so everything's super relaxed, right? You want another beer? We're just like hanging out. We're just two guys. And you're just like, it's just, you know. Well, when Fred Ward's drunk or, or, or buzzed, but he's kind of like doing, like prodding him for details. Like he's like, you've been in prison because I could see the, and Alec Baldwin plays the scene with his arm completely around his food. And he's like, oh, only someone in prison would have done that. And Alec Baldwin gives what little exposition he does for his character, where he's like, uh, oh, I was raised in the system. Right. Yeah, he says he was a foster kid. But also the other thing you speak about, that physicality with the food, too. The way he eats the whole time and the way he drinks those long necks. Oh, he's, yeah. like, he's sucking them right from the cap the whole time. And he's like, feral. he's like a Full feral fisted. animal. You know, yeah. he's very animal-like, and he's wildly handsome in this movie, too, which is hilarious. Because right. it's like, you. it's almost like it... You know, it, it, it should almost have somebody that's harsher looking, but the fact that it's him at this age just makes it all the more interesting. I think that that's one of the best, that was one of my favorite things we're watching it. I talked about this a little in the introduction already before before we came on. Like, it's Newman-esque how, like, beautiful he was when he was young. When he was totally, young. those fucking eyes. Those yeah. fucking eyes, yeah. Shane, you, you, you're doing an admirable job of recounting the plot of this movie, but again, you've overlooked the sequence. <laughs> Chime in whenever it's needed. Yeah, it's fine. Alec Baldwin, he, 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 lest we forget, he decides to just go rob the neighbor and take their coin collection, their gun, and I believe their pork chops. That's where the pork chops come from. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer Jason Lee's neighbor. While he recites haikus about what he's doing. Um, because Jennifer Jason Lee is, I guess, is taking a poetry class. Yeah. yeah, that was that was amazing. The haiku thing was just classic. And, and, and what I liked was like, there's this little bit, there's these funny moments again, it's similar to the line about where he states what he's doing. Where like Fred Ward says to Jennifer Jason Lee, "How did you make this pork chop? This is the best meal I've ever had." And she's like, "I just grilled both sides and put some salt on." It. <laughs> put some salt <laughs> on it. <laughs> You gotta give me that recipe. And then they like run into each other way later at the market and they're exchanging some sort of recipe that probably involves two ingredients. That yeah, <laughs> that's how he, he gets back in into her good graces by like, oh, I have this recipe that's something yes. more than salt. Yeah, but back to what something you said earlier about like, you know, the the way the cops are portrayed. Another angle of that too is just the way, you know, again, the type of movie this was and the way they went with it because there is a, a more obvious sort of like early mid 90s studio developed version of this movie that this is not and i'm glad that it's not you know what i mean like i think like i just rewatched unlawful entry for like another project like not long ago which is you know ray liotta and kurt oh. russell oh, and that's like oh. it's like that's 1992 and so it's very much on the heels of this you know yeah. what i mean or even so and i feel like you know so many things that were happening independently in the late 80s you know got turned into the hollywood version down the line but this thing is just still so raw because they're like there's a great fundamental idea like all the money he makes is from robbing robbers right. like that would be like that's a very simple setup Robin Hood and then yeah and he just turns the whole thing into a joke and that one sequence they must go through like him robbing like eight different criminals while they're in the middle of it like my favorite was the mall scene where he just happens to go to the mall and immediately witnesses a crime in action it's like, I don't think I've, 
I've seen a crime once when I was in college in New York, like it while it unfurled in front of me. But he sees them like fifteen times a day. He's you don't. You don't have the underworld sensibility eyes. You don't I know don't, where I don't, to I don't have those cool blue underworld eyes checking you need, everything out. You need to go to a mall in Miami to find. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, I, I love. I love the depiction. Obviously, Miami's in the title, but I love this depiction of Miami as like crime happening all the time, <laughs> like everywhere. There are drug deals and 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 thieves and everything and then the police are sort of like amused by it like you know <laughs> yeah. like when, when he when alec baldwin unwittingly solves a case for fred ward's for right. Mosley, it was a murder like, it was a whole full-blown murder he could solve. Yeah, like, he's like i worked on that for 15 months <laughs> okay we, we can we can fill in the plot holes or plot points that i'm not i'm not missing but i do want to get to the main thrux of I think is a spine of the movie, at least uh, thematically. I don't know. Is uh, so Alec Baldwin thinks the Fred Ward, uh, the Hulk Mosley's onto him, and he goes back to he fought, he he was given his card, so he knows where he lives. So he goes back, and Hulk Mosley's uh, divorced. He's got like two kids in the book, and he's just kind of living in a slum with a um, an old person's home where you have to call to a, a deaf person is the the person answering the phone so you have to keep calling so the light blinks before the deaf person actually sees it and alec ball come comes in attacks him uh takes a bunch of stuff from him most notably the dentures um uh, his badge and but leaves like 420s leaves a little bit of money left yeah he leaves the cash on the table that was the interesting yeah he leaves the cash on the table because he's a he's a dynamic character hmm. <laughs> Which comes up later. They they talk about it. Yeah, I like I like their relationship in this, but there was only one way for this movie to end. And so then he ends up playing cop. And one of the most interesting, odd things I noticed. This is my third viewing of this. uh, Whenever he decides to become a cop, and he tries to do this '80s bougie homemaker thing with Jennifer Jason Leigh as his wife. His hair has just been kind of this wild, spiky thing up to that point. And then when he decides he's going to be whatever this homemaker thing is, it gets slicked back. And then the scene when it in, when the, you could tell the scene it's over in the convenience store because his hair goes back to normal for that scene. I love I love that. And I remember the first one too is when he just gets like a giant bag of weed and then like handcuffs the two weed dealers to a trash can or something. <laughs> you know, I think like, one of those was the murderer too. Are we? Oh, right. One of those. That's why I love that joke, too. When he said, I know we already talked about this. When the guy says he's like, you should just leave him out there a little longer. I'll, I'll take care of your caseload. Light up your caseload if he's out there long enough. Later, he's like, I don't know why I thought I could be a fucking solid citizen or something is the quote he gives. That's good. Yeah. He, he, the Hope Mosley character, because again, you, and when you watch the movie and you're a little tuned into things, you're like, oh, Fred Ward produced this. And like during the movie, I was like, I bet, I, I, was like, I bet Fred Ward wanted to be, um, he did, a Baldwin character, which of course was true. Uh, and but at the same time, I'm like, Fred Ward is too, not necessarily famous, but too good. And I know he produced this movie. There's more to this character. And again, my first time watching it. So then when the movie sort of doesn't totally shift its point of view, but all of a sudden you're like, oh, he lives in this dump. What a kind of sad existence for a police officer. 
like he stores his dentures in, in whiskey or brandy. Which yeah. is really like, and what's his sort of existence? Like this is, and then this, I'm getting to the point when Paul Gleason, which is, I'm jumping ahead a little, but, but Paul Gleason shows up, the, um, the principal from Breakfast Club. That's exactly um, where I was going, what I, how I would describe him too. Yeah, 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 because he was taking some of his take from Pablo, the escort of the the pimp uh, concierge. Well, and just, just it's like that was the most the closest the movie came to like this hard like everything's corrupt. So now this guy, this poor cop who had his gun and dentures stolen, is getting cut out by this fake cop, and some vice cop in a white suit is mad at him, you know, for corrupt. Like it just was like, oh, everything is terrible for this poor police officer. Can you guys imagine an alternate casting back to the point you were saying about that um um Ward would have probably wanted to play Junior in the original version of this. Can you imagine a casting of this where Ward plays Junior and Gene Hackman plays Hoke? Because that was uh, apparently Gene Hackman was interested in this at one point. Yes and yes. Like for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. Especially the Gene Hackman part though. And then uh, a few years ago, I guess before Curtis Hansen died, there was an attempt by Curtis Hansen and Scott Frank to get a TV show of Hope Mosley off the ground with Paul Giamatti playing him. Oh, that makes total sense. What a, what a, that'd been a great bit of casting, really. Yeah. Although Armitage thought he didn't like Giamatti. As, uh, he thought that was a bad idea. Hmm. Yeah, Fred Ward has that, like, more of the hard-boiled police, like what you're, you know, the square jaw and the build and everything that you kind of look for in that. I was looking up Fred Ward at this period. So like Fred Ward seemed, I always remember him more as a TV guy, but this is his high period because he was doing like, he he had a small role in right stuff. He was in Silkwood. I remember him from our episode on, on swing shift where like he has a role in swing shift where the, the director's cut is significantly better. It makes him a Demi player. Most notably, I think a lot of people remember him from uh, Tremors, but he also had a role in Henry and June, the Philip Kaufman movie, which I forgot mm-hmm. about. Uh, yeah. He's in he's in the player. He's in Bob Roberts. He, this is a this is a high period for him. He's doing good movies at this point. Yeah, because the player was what 91, 91. Yeah, that's right. It was ninety two. Yeah, I think it's ninety two. And tr- Tremors is like 88, 89. Sounds about right. God, I love that movie. Growing up, I have not seen that movie in forever. Classic. I think that movie has aged incredibly well. It, I was like, it's definitely aged. I always think of that moment in the third season of of, uh, Project Greenlight where, um, what's the guy's name that was the director? It was actually 90. Sorry. That sounds right. Actually, sorry. What a fucking year for movies, huh? Um, What's the third season? (laughs) The guy that was in the third season of Project Greenlight, whenever there's that one episode where they're getting on his, uh, the Miramax people were on his ass about what's the tone? What's the tone? And like, he can't tell, explain it to him until finally he just shows them tremors and they're like, oh, we get it. That I saw the third season. I saw this. Maybe I did. It's it's the but, it's the one that had the actually talented director who couldn't articulate stuff, and his dad was an actor. I can't believe I'm yeah, forgetting his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He made like a horror film or a thr- He made yeah, but he made like a Tremors. And Miramax then made multiple sequels off of it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I Fred Ward. I always feel like he's he's obviously overlooked a little bit. I, I I always think of him as being in the right stuff. That's actually like where his hit that <clears throat> Tremors for me. But I was sort of psyched when I saw he produced this. I was like, oh, I had no – he... oh, I think he's also first billed as an actor. I think he comes before Alec Baldwin. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's right. That's 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 the EP credit coming into play, huh? Yeah, So, which which I think is an interesting – I mean, again, like we're getting kind of nitty-gritty of movie watching. But it does make you wonder an hour into the movie, why have I spent 90% of this movie with Alec Baldwin? 
Like clearly something's going to happen with this other character, which it does. It sort of does happen that way. Um, and I think it's, I, I, that's why I felt better when I said that the movie loses it a little bit when it goes to Hope Mosley. I think it just loses the like manic, con- the controlled mania of the first hour once it has to center a little bit around like wrapping things up, which is always the problem with movies. That I mean, that's always, yeah, when you're not overly plotty, that's when you get into that post midpoint territory, I think, where it's just like, yeah, we were shot out of a cannon. But then once we start needing to have things just sort of calcify and come together at the end so that we we have a resolution, it just it yeah, it gets clunkier. But he was good. I just didn't fully I think he I think he did a good job with that role, but it but you know, it, it was fun to watch, but I agree on the momentum note. Well the Wilford Innovation supposedly, which gets him with in line with Jim Thompson, was he was one of those writers who wanted like if he had a reoccurring detective character the books were going to center around the antagonist and, and something, the energy of the book was going to come from the antagonist. So that makes sense mm. that Alec Baldwin would be the feature, the junior character would yeah, be the feature sure. of this. It would be interesting though. And I bet editorially, I wouldn't be surprised if they had some earlier scenes, you know, with Fred that they didn't make it in there just because they, they, they deferred and wanted to start off on a bang. I don't think they shot it, but it was an early draft screenplay thing. The book is different between the Susie character, the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Her brother in the book is the Hare Krishna who gets killed. No shit. I, I read oh, that. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a very different thing. It, he said it was like 10 extra pages and like you got to admit like there's some leanness to this back to what you were saying earlier about the development of like early to mid 90s uh, studio stuff. I think of this as like that glory days of like like dying glory days of Orion when like they were the last studio that was like just a little bit into the 90s still trying to carry a little bit of the 70s going just to, just yep. as much as they could. Orion put out a lot of cool titles. Yeah. And I that's like per- I I just love these types of movies. I mean, I just think they're just so fun. I think it's such a weird amalgamation and it's this handoff from the 70s and 80s into the 90s where like all these things you see them done more commercially. Look where Demi was 5 or 6 years later, but there was just like a lot of weird interesting like again something wild you know, and, 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 you know, just like this range of things where we're just like trying mashups and doing kind of crazy stuff. And then um, they have their like, la- I don't know when Orion officially went out. I want to say they went to the mid nineties, but then they have silence of the lambs coming after this, which is a critical commercial success. Yeah. yeah it's huge. I, I, I'm on my brains in two places and I'm, I'm not speaking much because both of them, but the two things I want to say, one, this is probably not in the movie had this conversation, but maybe a good idea for a future episode, Shane. Okay. There's something about how, in a cop movie or in a police movie, the antagonist is obviously more interesting. And I was trying to see how the Batman movies, like when they're, when they work are sort of structured that way. Right. right. Like Bat- that's, that's, been, that's a classic comic book complaint about Batman movies. It's why right. like the, like uh, the first and last Nolan movies, a lot of comic book fans, like really, even really push just like, it's a simple fact. It's the first time those movies kind of work without the villain being more interesting or the movies are actually about mm. Bruce Wayne and Batman. Mm. Rather than like the other people, right? And so that's that's just a thought I'm throughout there. But the other one, which uh, Tyler's going to be better at talking about, is how this does bridge from your. We keep using something wild, but there are some other films in the mid to late '80s that are sort of again I keep doing vamp- Vampire's Kiss, even though it's so different. But these sort of slightly wilder movies that are like kind of with an independent spirit, but are getting are sneaking through somehow um, that have noir or 
crying drama elements. And then this moment in the 90s with like, I guess Bad Lieutenant is probably pretty close to this. And then you start to get your unlawful entries. Yeah, OG Bad Lieutenant's a great, a great note. And I was also going to say, you know, Blood Simple was 85. You know, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, there was just like a lot. And then Shane, earlier you brought up Elmore Leonard too, which I feel like it's like, yeah, there was just more and more of a taste for this kind of, uh, like what what did you say Tarantino referred to Pulp Fiction as? He, he said just, you know. The, um, I mean, modern modern crime fiction. Yeah, it's just modern front crime fiction. I mean, I think that that just kind of like obsession and then it just kind of ran rampant and lots of cool, funking, interesting indie movies came out and then Hollywood found out on how to capitalize. Yeah. And also thinking about Goodfellas, which is, you know, crime fiction. I mean, it's nonfiction, but it's, you know, but I just think that that was the craze at the beginning of the 90s. And so the, the industry figured out a way to play off of that and the success of those. I mean, this I don't know, if, like, because <clears throat> Goodfellas is so nonfiction based but clearly like a funny first person crime movie but this is four years before Pulp Fiction and the Tarantino craze I don't know if this is a good enough segue of uh, what is what is you guys' relationship to Gross Point Blank uh, first of all sorry, it's, I'm sorry that's crazy to me there's only four years between this and Pulp Fiction yeah. isn't that not, well see that's why Pulp Fiction was almost the end of this yeah like, once that happened it, he did the postmodern modern crime thing almost in a way where it kind of brought an end to that period. But you guys remember the nineties and like the, like just like every hip talking, uh, crime movie, heist movie that like, cause, cause I mean like the, the whole influence supposedly that people talk about Wilford is this like what you guys were talking about earlier, the groundedness next to the absurd. And just like, uh, it didn't even have to be this high energy, wacky, anything can happen vibe, but it was just, crime is absurd and then you grounded it then made it real i, I guess the thing with pulp fiction is it just feels so i hate i hate using this word but it feels like timeless in this way whereas like miami blues is like this is 1989 miami whereas pulp fiction is and because of a lot of reasons it exists and i think a lot has to do with the reception the films had and the reputations developed it does feel like when i think about the movie it almost feels present to me um, yeah, I think so much of that's like um like one of our greatest like film artists like Tarantino, especially in the last years, as he's like fulfilled whatever premise any naysayer of Pulp Fiction had on him, and, like he's starting to get up there as like you know there's the joke in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of like they keep making jokes about Disney, but he's starting to get up to that level of Disney, um, Spielberg level of these guys who were just born to make movies and they're a cinematic voice and like. There's a, a confluence of influences coming together for Pulp Fiction, as great as Reservoir Dogs is, where, you know, you got your Godard coming in there with the crime fiction, with just all, it's a, it's a very timeless movie made by someone that has a very distinct uh, distillation of his influences coming together at the right time. And so and the humor, the humor ages so well. I think that's another part of it, that the humor is, is very timeless in that movie. But it's, then but then you go from uh, Pulp Fiction to, to Jackie Brown, which feels more of like Elmore Leonard. Yeah. I mean, and Elmore Leonard seems like a a, a, a contemporary of this. Like, uh, a, well, I just looked up Get Shorty, the movie, you know, which is a hyper overproduced Hollywood movie with all Hollywood big stars. Nineteen ninety five. So like they're probably shooting Get Shorty, you know, before Scott Pulp Frank. Fiction was even 
from premiering a can, you know? So it was just, there was something, this is actually, this whole conversation is making me think, wow, people were really obsessed with crime fiction in the early nineties. Like they were just all over it. That was also produced by uh, what's Danny DeVito's company. They produce Pulp Fiction and they produce right. Kiss Shorty too. That make yeah, I guess that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, Travolta's in Get Shorty, right? Right. Yeah, he's in both of them. They probably shot like back to back. Yeah, it might be one of the things they were like, oh, you... You were in that cool movie. Now we're going to put you in this cool movie. Tyler, right. are you familiar with um um what's the uh, Scott Frank uh, the walk in the uh, walk amongst the tombstones the um uh, yeah the Liam Neeson one yeah. I, I saw it I haven't no but yeah. the the books the books they're based I on. haven't read them yeah. I, I just feel like Scott Frank had his like his tastes are like as a screenwriter on the on the Pulse Scott these... Frank I mean like right then he was writing you know what Get Out of Sight was like right? fucking you know it was probably yeah. two years after that so I mean he's obsessed. I love Scott Frank, but you know he was obsessed at that same time. He probably wow. wrote a whole slew of Hollywood crime script. But a walk among a walk amongst the tombstones is a series of uh, crime books. I forget the author, but it's the same guy that did uh, Ten Thousand Ways to Die, the Oliver, the um, Hal right. Ashby's last movie. Oh wow! Or Ten Million Ways yeah. to Die. What? What? what, what, what Getting right. Uh, yeah. Eight million ways to die. God damn it! It's a number. I can't get this right. same large scale focus that uh, or, or vision that Tyler mentioned of like the 90s crime film like the line you draw from kind of from Miami Blues to I, I don't know I mean Out of Sight maybe or maybe there's one after that I'm, I'm... I mean Out of Sight's an interesting because I, was, I just looked at it, it was 1998 you know? yeah and then I mean I guess Oceans is sort of like a little bit past that but the out of sight kind of is the end i mean that's kind of coming to the 98 99 it was sort of the end of the period you guys are thinking of the positives i'm thinking of the of i remember <laughs> being in a, a video store thinking do i want to rent uh eight heads in the duffel bag or uh things to do in denver when you're dead Ugh. i mean that's the problem anytime a trend ends in hollywood it ends brutally with a bunch of terrible releases i think well just to loop, loop back to it because it's obviously it's relevant um uh Gross Point Blank fits right into this. That, uh, yeah. And my relationship to the movie is really uh, not unusual. It's probably very similar. Um, I have some family who live in Gross Point. Uh, my mom is from the Detroit area. Oh, era, wow. Area. And my uncle lives in Gross Point. He's a lawyer. Um, so I always like would go to Gross Point, and I kind of knew what it was. And then when the movie came out, I was allowed to see it, which was unusual because I think it was R-rated. And I was probably like 12. Is it 96 or 97? 97. 97. Yeah, so I'm 12. Okay. And um, and I got to see it in theaters, and that's the only time I've seen it all the way through. So no, really? I don't remember. I've seen parts of it, and I, I don't remember a ton of it, but I remember this, like, thoughtful, funny, accessible, like, Hitman movie. It's kind of like my... That's pretty I'm, much it. I think <laughs> it's thoughtful and fun. I mean, it's funny. My, my experience with it is the exact opposite where I, I don't, I've never been there. I don't recall the first time I've watched it, but I have seen it a hundred times. times. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, like rewatchable movie, right? Like I feel like, yeah, well, it's one of those movies, just like a lot of these, you know, I mean, I think that's why we lo love a lot of these movies. You can just drop in at any point, you know, you can drop it in any scene and, and it's, it's sequence to sequence, but there is, there's something we talk about Demi. There's that, isn't there the scene when like the talking heads are actually playing in gross point blank at the pro at their reunion. And he's meeting the daughter of some girl he used to hook up with. 
with in high school and he has that amazing moment where he's like looking into the eyes of the, the child. Yeah, it's a baby. It's the baby, right? It's the baby, yeah. But isn't it like Talking Heads is playing during that beat? When you start to draw this whole line through things, you know what I mean? Realizing this was seven years later, you know, but the Demi connection to Talking Heads and like, that's all just interesting. I didn't think about that. And I find it so fascinating that a year after all this, Jonathan Demi's making Beloved for Oprah. Um, <laughs> yeah. My my experience with this, I don't remember seeing it in theaters, but I'm with you, Tyler. I saw it like a ton of times, but yeah. my big movie from that era, from this would have been High Fidelity. So I think of Gross Point Blank as the antecedent, where it's like the first DC, Divicentis, Sting Pink, and John Cusack screenplay. And um, Armitage talked about this, like, he thinks he could have gotten a writing credit on Girls Point Blank, but mostly it was an editorial one because he kept telling he'd be like, get it under 100 or get it just around 100 pages and they never would. And he said he shot three versions of the movie where one was the script, the understated version, and then the overblown version. And the overblown version is the one that made it into theaters. Because, like, he came, the coming from the uh, Corman school is this idea that, like, you make your days, you shoot your shit really fast, and um, after you get done shooting it very fast, then you let the actors play. And then there's some, you can you can move around there, and you can also find some very odd tangents to go <laughs> off from there. And, and it was the late 90s, and you had a lot of fucking money, and you could probably shoot for however many days they were shooting for He was two. shooting for more days than he was used to. He bragged so in this interview. He So basically, he gave a film comment interview. Uh, um, Nick Pinkerton wrote an uh, appreciation of him a few uh, before this, and literally, I love the story. In the comments section, uh, Armitage was like, uh, he at the end of it, he talked about after Big Bounce, um, he just hadn't made really made a movie in a long time. And Armitage left a comment on the article. So then Pinkerton <laughs> then found him and then got an interview with him that has so many of these stories. But That's awesome. I love that he commented. I was going to say the other thing, just quick aside, that I remember this from years ago because I really do love Gross Point Blank. I think it's great. And I think it's, the you know, Gross Point Blank, unlike a lot of the other titles we're talking about, is a rom-com. You know, I mean, that's, that's the center of, you know, get, you know, out of sight has that component to it and it's got... But that's more of just like a sexy subplot. Like it's still very much a through and through. I guess movie. It's, it's a very soulful romance. That is like yeah, a tragic yeah. But this is like it. really this is a nostalgic, sentimental rom com with that he happens to be a hitman in it, and there's people after him. Um, but I was going to say this guy Tom Jankowitz, poor he died at 49 in San Bernardino, but he was grew up in Detroit. It's his only credit in life. Like, huh. gotta wonder, you know where. Where that came from, and maybe he was just part of some development process, or maybe he just had that in him. It's interesting. I, yeah, I, mean, I did not mention him when I was going through the screenwriters for Gross Point Blank. This is a total, uh, totally unrelated aside, but I was in, when I was in graduate school, the writer for Gran Torino came in and spoke. I forget his name. Because he got plucked out of like nowhere, right? Like they just read the script? He, he, <laughs> he, and I thought about him actually when I was reading the Wikipedia page, whatever I was reading about, about Miami Blues, because He's like, yeah, like I came to LA. I think he's from he's from Michigan, I think. Uh, that writer, and he's like, I came to LA and I didn't make it, and I went back to Michigan, and I wrote this film about like I wrote like kind of a first draft, and it was sort of based. I had friends in Minneapolis who knew the Hmong population, that Cambodian, uh, whatever, whatever the immigrants that are that are in in uh, Grand Torino, and I gave it to a friend who like knew an agent, and he gave it to that agent who gave it to Eastwood, and then Eastwood said, I'm making this movie. And within like five weeks, I think, was shooting it. And then the, that's and it. The, it was like something crazy. And then, the, and of course, Eastwood works really fast. 
and this writer in this in our like class was like he didn't change a word and he really should have <laughs> i heard him like he's like but it was like i wrote a script and like i made and i was still living in michigan and Clint had made it and got like oscar nominated and it really should have been changed kyle and i don't know if you guys worked since um I'm but, shaking my fist at you because for the last two episodes, I've had Ted Haycraft on, and I was hoping we could get through one episode without Clint Eastwood coming up. And <laughs> I, was, I was, I was, literally before this call, I was at my local video store that I still frequent, and I ran to some friends of mine. They decided to rent uh, Breezy, which I've never seen. The Clint Eastwood movie. I have never seen Breezy. I, I'm unfamiliar with it. None of us had heard of it. And then and then one of them like picked up um he's a filmmaker, he like picked up the case and he like Googled it. He's like, I'm gonna rent this movie. So nineteen seventy-three, breezy. Breezy. Yeah, I think there's a Kino, I mean it's Kino Blu-ray of it. Anyway, I got I actually rented Married to the Mob because I've never seen that. And you I never seen Married to the Mob? Oh, oh. Married to the Mob's really fun. It's an I anti it's that. an anti this conversation because it would probably help me to have watched it prior to this. But I like Maggie Blues so much, I wanted to see more of where this comes from and obviously i knew alec baldwin's in it and I, this is why the demi living in miami i didn't know that um i think i gotta do something wild rewatch that's that's on my docket soon something wild is a great rewatch uh, yeah but, but and, and daniels is so good in it. The, the the thing that, that that's also going back to miami blues is like of this era like um demi is always so uh, it just feels attuned to the culture he's shooting in and this transferred arbitrage where like these movies like they, they fit that stereotype of movies that are about the towns that they're shooting in, where the towns are their own character. Like Miami, it's 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 a title character, granted, but it's a character that's of the movie too. We we were in uh, Portland a couple years ago. Oh, I wish I had it with me, but we went to some bar, and they it was like a Miami themed bar in Portland, not in the cool part of Portland either. It was kind of further out. <laughs> The bar was the bar was like very hip, and they had this you know they gave us we had a matchbook, and it was um, sort of that lime green, uh, like purple pink color, and that that you sort of associate with Miami. And and there were a couple scenes in the movie where like he gets out of a car. There's one scene in particular. He gets it's an exterior. He gets out, and the lighting on this building is these exact colors. This like you know like a teal you know, or like yeah, I guess, like, I guess it's teal. I guess it's teal, it's teal and like a. I, I'm looking at actually a weight right now. That's like one of the like a dumbbell. It's like one of the colors. I mean, I'll go grab it, but that won't help the listeners. Um, mm -hmm. But they're very like Miami colors, and I was like, you wonder. I started thinking like, where does that like that obviously develops out of like Latin culture and out of the Cuban culture that comes to Miami? Um, but the movie does have that very lived in Miami blues. That is uh, very. Um, it feels like a real place. It feels, and it feels like a place that people are now like. Uh, starting to get nostalgic for like the shopping mall the glass bricks one of the first shots of the movie is him coming down the off the airplane and it's shot through glass bricks those mm. uh fought, they're often on like bathrooms I would, yeah it's and, like a salute to the 80s right there yeah what? but it's like they're, they're saluting it like right then you know it's like still in the moment and they're making conscious choices to capture this and in a way uh, uh shane was just talking about how lived in the location feels and i mean the the only really bad thing about Miami in this film is that it's full of crime and every everywhere you go. Well, I think from a worse standpoint, like the reason this feels like it's such a, um, uh, a snapshot of Miami is, uh, especially in the years to come, Miami's always going to supposedly be the, not to be downer about this, 
the bellwether point of global warming and the oceans rising. Like I, I was reading this essay about like when um, the wa water levels rise in Miami and you know, it's, it's this big uh, real estate boon for oligarchs to put their money into real estate along with New York and Miami. And when the waters start to rise, the way you're going to see the waters rising in a city like Miami is it's going to come through the sewers and shit's going to start coming up on the sidewalks. So whenever that happens, you can look at a movie like Miami Blues and remember better times of a corrupt city in teal. I'd rather be there in the 80s than in 20 years, probably. I did want to go into, have either of you seen The Big Bounce? Okay, so uh, I have a real horrifying confession that I've realized during this call, <laughs> which is that uh, in college, I worked at the school newspaper as like the film critic guy whatever it was like a nothing job you reviewed like, it. you reviewed it please tell me you reviewed it um i turned down a review and i believe i turned down an interview with george armitage hmm. i believe they were trying to push that movie so they would often like push movies to the college kids at the time wow to to give you the t the tv on the radio version both tyler and i's jaw dropped when you said that literally i mean yeah I, I as as, we, as, we, as you mentioned the big bounce, I, I looked it up last night, but it just it struck me because it was 04, and they were like clearly trying to play off Owen Wilson or whatever and market to college kids, and yeah, I, tur I turned down like the chance to. But you never see saw it. it. I never saw it. I've never seen it either. It's, I think it was okay. one of those horribly panned movies that most of us didn't make it to. Okay, and um, whenever <laughs> critics pan movies and do their group think, and like they then jump on to like who can come up with the cleverest phrase to say something shitty about a movie, I always like part of my resentment comes from the fact that if you've never worked in a movie theater, you if you were if you're a critic, you saw it once. Good for you. Like, oh, you had to sit through it once. But when you work in a movie theater, you see that five times a day. And, like, Big Bounce is... Okay, so Big Bounce, according to Armitage in the um, interview, was shot as an NC-17 movie and was then had to be recut into a PG-13 movie. And then he gave up after two director's cuts. Wow. And then they just cut it into PG-13. And I remember it was a January release. I'm pretty sure it was a January release. That was my, like, that was my Razzie that year. That was, like, the most incoherent, obviously recut. I was, I think it was a big Entertainment Weekly reader at the time, and I was reading about how the movie was taken away or whatever. But I remember a sequence in the middle of it where Owen Wilson, and I forget the actress's name. She wasn't, hasn't been much besides that. They just, there's this, like, gag sequence where they just go up and down stairs for a while it's clearly re-edited but it's so nothing happens when they go upstairs or downstairs but they just because they cut out the nc-17 scene between the yeah because they go to a bedroom i think but they just go upstairs and downstairs and the sequence just plays of them going upstairs and downstairs i'm literally looking at a shot from the movie with willie nelson and and harry dean stanton in it yeah, in what? in in, in the, in the <laughs> like, uh, I Nick, didn't even know what a cast. In, in both the Nick Pickerton essay and in the interview, he talked about uh, that is clearly an amazing scene. I don't remember it, but he was talking. And then Armitage was like, "Yeah, there's a longer version of that." And his director's cut is the version he wished people would have seen. I I, I have a uh, I have a a funny um, movie geek related uh, thing here, which is I sometimes I I was correct. I, I looked, big bounce was the film. I turned down the chance to interview, but. I sometimes confuse that with Big Trouble, which is a movie based Another on... Another Miami-based crime movie that I guess that Bill Lord Leonard vibe. Yep. Well, 
Elmer Leonard's Big Bounce. My, oh Big yeah, that was Dave Barry. Dave yeah. Barry was. Dave Barry was based out of Miami mm-hmm. at the time too. Wasn't and that's Sonnenfeld. I remember that movie. That's another interesting crime movie that went awry and didn't get a lot of love. Well, I always, movie, I always thought of that as a movie that was trying to recapture something that didn't then come about. Well, then later in life, I've gotten confused because there's also Big Trouble directed by John Cassavetes, his last film. That was stolen by the studios, uh, or like not stolen, but like recut, and he like disavowed. Um, but I believe that's his last directorial credit. Is also a film called Big Trouble. Mm. Um, so it's like big. <laughs> big is there a, in China coming anywhere soon? But yeah, Big Big Trouble. It's O two. The they bury Miami one. Big Bounce O four. Armitage Hawaii. But see, that's what we. But see, we were just talking about the how did this period die? It was with titles like Big Trouble yeah. and The Big yeah. Bounce. Like those were pretty much that because it's amazing they even made The Big Bounce after Big Trouble, probably because I think that was a definite commercial failure. I, I would, I would think it's something like that. I would think it's uh, Kill Bill when Tarantino's like, I'm not doing crime anymore, and although you know, kind of did. And um, and then let's, let's let's be honest. It's the 2008 economic crisis and DVD going away. <laughs> For all things. <laughs> For all things. Yeah. No. Sorry. You just you kind of blew my brain open real quick. I, I, it was like I, I'm just thinking about. Sorry. What you just said. Like dict, it's like how do how do and it's so obvious. But how did the world dictate the popular things that were shown? You know, like. How does how did the how did the economic crisis give us Marvel right? I mean, yeah. Iron Man one is oh eight or oh nine, and or it's, somewhere, it's somewhere around there, and that's the Marvel thing, and that's the way movies are being packaged, made, and risks are being taken. All these other things we can all complain about. I mean, or we're all way. still like trying to unpack two thousand eight. It feels like, yeah, hundred percent. I, I think you're completely right, and I always think about what what year was was Paranormal Activity around there? Was that like oh nine or two thousand ten? That yeah, I would say like twenty ten maybe. Because I feel like that movie exists in this like bizarre alternate plan where I, I remember like Paramount briefly had a they had like a low budget thing. Oh seven, yeah, they opened that whole Paramount Vantage thing just for like ultra low budget okay. right after. Yeah. Well, Vantage was yeah. their um, prestige one. I thought they had yeah, a different was, one from Paramount. Oh, I'm confusing them. Yeah, but yeah, they it, opened a micro one. But it was a micro. Yeah. You, yeah, some might had some other name, but it was like we're going to do ten hundred thousand dollars movies a year or something, and if one of them makes a million, we're great, you know. Which sort of seems like great business sense. Why wouldn't you do that? Because the Blumhouse model. If the one does hit, yeah, it's, it's exactly Blumhouse. Well, he's ah, he's a little more, but not that much more than those. Um, but it, that obviously died in '08, and yeah, and then we got faced with what we're currently looking at, and obviously what we're at the exact moment looking at. Well, like, and I think it was just like the business logic for like when you said it was like oh like oh eight oh nine probably the first Iron Man and just the separate and then once streamers started to come and Netflix started to dominate and then the only movie that was actually going to get people to pay the premium was going to be the Marvel movie or whatever these you know just squeezed out a lot of the types of titles that we all love from being able to be made in a studio system. And if, if you love if you love a crime drama or a crime thriller, you have it on television. You have true yep. crime. You have Law and Order, 
yeah I, I yeah i think to be fair like peak tv kind of took some of this on and then um right For now sure. we're in this this era where i've heard described that like the way like with the streamers the problem is is that their development process is long but once the development process is done like they leave you alone so people are getting to make a lot of movies there and in theory like i don't know but like this this could go to another episode, Kyle. And you, we we've talked about happiness of this like idea that um, the streamers are taking feature ideas and just like padding their middles out and turning them into miniseries or seasons of TV. You know. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, there's we we've talked. Yeah, I, Shane, I know you're a fan of like certain. There's secretly great content out there. The problem is getting it like getting eyeballs on it. Right, As, right. Ninety when this movie opened at number four at the box office, Miami Blues. Was, and I think it actually opened after uh, it was like it was number four and number three was Hot Word October, which Alec Baldwin was also oh, in. Wow, that's wild. Months. Yeah, I, that was it's mentioned in there, but it's like they were trying to capitalize on his uh, his fame at the time. You know, it, it, that's another funny thing about movies that is unique to that experience of going to the cinema. Like I, I think a lot about Jim Carrey's 1994, right? Like, yeah, he's shot Ace Ventura mm-hmm. and then he shoots. The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and um, they everyone as a as a fan, you're like, wow, they like they backlog these movies. This guy, they knew this guy was something, and you uh, similar to this, it's like, oh, we have a hot Alec Baldwin movie. Well, you, only you can see Alec Baldwin is in the theater. You can't see him on television. You might see him on like Letterman, but if you want to like see this person who you like, presumably, here's your movie. And um, I don't know, it's a funny just the appeal nowadays. of a movie star in an actual theater. Right, yeah. Now we're just inundated with information about Alec Baldwin or whatever celebrity. And while we're recording this, uh, March 15th, Monday, I think they just started opening the AMCs in Los Angeles. I heard today the Burbank and Century City ones reopened. So. Do you guys have any last thoughts on Miami Blues you wanted to get through? Um, I think I think this movie... Okay, actually, I do. I do have something. Um, it's amazing to me that I feel like I've watched a lot of movies. I have like a list of how many movies I've watched. It's in the thousands. And yet there are these movies that are like hiding in broad daylight in a sense that I had no idea existed, despite having all like it's it's Jonathan Demi produced with Fred Ward and Tech Fujimoto shooting it and Alec Baldwin and Jennifer recently. And I somehow like kind of had no awareness of this movie, despite being, you know, I was like six or seven when it came out. Not that I would have been seen by any movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but even in like the cult atmospheres I walk in, I, I, I try to frequent the the film writing that I freak, that I, I read, uh, I was sort of completely unaware of this movie, really, until Shane mentioned it to me. And then I looked at my letterbox, and everyone I watched had seen it, and I was like, "How how did this <laughs> title escape me?" And um, I think that's part of the reason is it's I'm sure it's maybe actually a rights issue with this movie, like the fact that I know there's a Blu-ray out, but maybe it like floated around and it was unavailable, it didn't get the push. Uh, but also, there's so a Shout that, Factory Blu-ray that just came out of it. Yeah, I mentioned I I told a friend about this who I thought had seen it and he had not, but he actually he owned the Blu-ray. See, he'd been he'd been told to watch it, so he's like, I, I bought the Blu-ray. That is the ilk we 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 roam with. Yeah, they buy the, <laughs> they buy the edition but have not watched the movie yet. Yeah, it's not. I, I don't roll that way. I got to see the movie before I, I drop the drop the coin. But I I do think there's an interesting thing happening. Um, and I, I again to tie back to the first thing I said tonight, uh, Vampire's Kiss, which I watched the first time. Another movie, how did I sort of miss this? Especially how did I miss this movie in the sort of Nicolas Cage meme era? And I think what's there's a moment right now where these movies are reaching an audience 
that is appreciating them in a way that people weren't when they came out. So Vampire's Kiss is a very obvious example of that, where it seems silly, and at the time, critics panned it, but you have so few critical outlets, and you have so few people really writing about it. And now everyone can see it, and everyone can realize how great it is. And Miami Blue, to me, falls in this similar, like, um, it felt like a, maybe a slight black hole where some people, it doesn't have to just be me, but um, missed it. And now what we might have written off as campy or as silly or whatever now looks like, oh, this is a smart, well-made genre movie um, and is worth, like, celebrating and rewatching. So I think that this, to me, it's like kind of uh, – Thing. And I hope that there's a lot more of these that emerge as a new generation of people write about movies and talk about movies and watch these films like from this moment, maybe this this pre-crime drama moment um, that, that happened. Yeah. I mean, just to build off of what, what you were just saying, I mean, I also think what was so cool about re-watching it and or even really just fully watching it, I, it was that like, yeah, it's like it's inspirational to see a movie because I think like I love genre and I'm like squarely a genre, pretty squarely a genre guy. But it's good to be reminded that, you know, genre films can be independent films. And I think that that's what like movies like this are really good reminders of where it's like, yeah, just because I'm making a genre film doesn't mean I'm filling in, you know, a paint by numbers and I'm finishing something off, you know, just the way that it's always been done before, you know, just like certain you know, like you said earlier, Shane, just like following the eccentricities and owning them and doing, you know, making interesting, bold decisions, even though you're within a genre framework, can really elevate something from just kind of, you know, or leave it there as like something to be found later. Even if it doesn't connect in the moment, you know, like it could be a found treasure. It's, down the, it's line. the reason that like, I know I rail against the studio and the development idea just because this movie has so much fucking personality to it. And it's a violent Ooh. movie with uh, a point of view that like would have been snuffed out. And I mean, I, to what you were saying, Kyle earlier, like my issue, I keep finding like the reason this is an episode just about Miami blues and not about George Armitage altogether is I can't find the other movies that he's done. Like you, I've seen the three big ones that he did. This one and his last two after this, I haven't seen any of the Corman movies. And, and to be fair, they're, they're available. I know they are like uh, Blu-rays are out of them, but like the streaming availability of them, like I, this is a filmmaker that's gotten kind of forgotten. Maybe he's, maybe he's a bit like, I think it, he said in one of the interviews that he's done like over a hundred scripts and like over 5,000 drafts. So like he, he considers himself more of a writer than a director. And, and a lot of his Corman stuff was producing writing, but a lot of this guy's stuff is out there and it was actually made and just, I just want to see more of it. Like, I, I wish we could have done a full episode on him. I was familiar, more familiar with him. And it's not for a lack of trying. Um, So I guess uh, that's that's it for, that's all I got. <laughs> Are you guys good? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having us. Fun to talk about. Thanks for making me watch it. Yeah. Kyle Smith, Tyler Savage, thanks for being on podcast. Of course. Awesome. Anytime, brother. Anytime, brother. <laughs>